Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. CRISPR is a groundbreaking genetic technology with huge promise. But right now, it's caught up in a massive scientific scandal. Right on the eve of an event to figure out the ethics of this technology, a researcher in China shocked the world by claiming that the first ever genetically edited babies have already been born. Scientists and researchers across the field are saying that whether or not these claims are true, this is horrifying news. What could it mean? Why are scientists so upset? And what is the future of gene editing? This is Radio Atlantic. Hello, folks. This is Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. Alex is off gallivanting this week. And here with me in studio are two... Familiar Voices Atlantic staff writers, Sarah Zhang. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And Ed Young. Hello. So, Ed, what just happened? Tell <laughs> us about this recent CRISPR scandal that has the genetic community all aflutter. So, roughly a week and a half ago, um, the world learned that uh, a Chinese scientist named He Jiankui had uh, allegedly created two uh, gene-edited babies. He had used uh, CRISPR to um, modify a gene called CCR5 in uh, two embryos, which uh, had been fertilized in vitro, uh, and which he then implanted into a woman uh, who then brought the two embryos to to term. Uh, so those two girls apparently exist. They're named Lulu and Nana. Um, and this would mark the first time that CRISPR has been used in this way. Um, so there have been past instances where people have used CRISPR to alter um, cells that are part of a person's uh, body. So you would take, say, there have been trials where you, for example, take immune cells from a person's body uh uh, alter that same gene, CCR5, um, and then put the cells back in. And CCR5 uh, influences um, our susceptibility to HIV. So if you uh, disrupt the gene, you theoretically reduce the risk of being infected or of sustaining the infection. So this has been used to uh, as a way of helping people who already have HIV. But this is very different because in, in this case, um, you're altering embryos, which means that you then alter the sex cells, the eggs and sperm, or in this case eggs, that will be made from those embryos, which means that the modifications you made are not just contained within that person. They transcend generations. Th these are called germline modifications. They will affect not just Lulu and Anna, but their children, their grandchildren, and so on. And this has long been seen as a really significant um, a barrier, like a, 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 it, it's, it's crossing an ethical Rubicon that no one has done yet and that was seen as a substantial moment in history that should only be crossed with um, incredible consideration, both for the the technical side of things, the uh, the ethics, the social implications. It should only be done 
when the world writ large was felt that it was ready um, for it to happen and yet it apparently just happened this one guy decided to do it and um, if his no one has verified his claims yet we don't have a lot to go on but let's assume it's true it does mark a huge scientific and ethical leap the the significance of the moment combined with things like some of the shoddiness of the actual work the secrecy behind the project and the fact that this was done in contravention of what the world was ready for at the time has made this intensely controversial so before we dive into the details of why this is so controversial in the scientific community, Sarah, can you tell us just a bit about what CRISPR is, how it has been used? Yes. Well, so the metaphor that is used most often is that CRISPR is a pair of molecular scissors. Hmm. Um, but the cool thing is that you can tell it exactly where to cut in your genome. Uh, so the way you do that is you, you basically give it a little piece of code, something like, you know, ATC, GCC or something. And it, it so kind of searches along your entire genome, finds the region that corresponds with that code, and then cuts right there. And you can do that with, like, pretty good precision. Um, and once it's made the cut, you can do also a number of kind of interesting things. One is if it cuts in the middle of a gene, you can deactivate that gene. Or maybe you want to add a new gene. You can add it, splice it right in. Or maybe you want to change like a, you know, an A to a T or something. You can make a tiny, small edit like that. So what CRISPR does, it just is it really opens up this toolbox, makes it really, really well, I won't say really, really easy because it's not like someone in your garage can probably do it, but makes it fairly easy to make these uh, edits in pretty much any organism you can think of, obviously mm. including humans. So CRISPR was discovered, um, that it was only discovered that it could do this maybe six years ago. And since then, we've gone from cells in a dish to human babies. So that gives you a sense of like, that is a warp speed for science. That's how quickly mm -hmm. this has moved. Yeah. It's, it's been used in mice, it's been used in plants, and now obviously it's been used in humans. Or so we think. That's so right. we suppose. So we think. That's right. Um, before we step into the ethical minefield that we've entered, can you just paint a picture of some of the promise of CRISPR, what this technology could do? Yeah, so part of what's interesting is that I think no one thinks that editing embryos is the best use of CRISPR at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so what has been really promising is uh, trials using CRISPR to cure genetic diseases in, in adults for the most part. For example, you could... Um, Take a, uh, there's a trial that's about to start where you, um, it's for blindness, a genetic form of blindness, and perhaps you can inject like the correct copy of this gene actually into the eye. This actually works. Um, wow. And actually, so people could start seeing again. Or there are other diseases like sickle cell anemia or beta and These are blood disorders. Um, you can take the blood from a person, um, edit those cells kind of in a controlled environment and before putting them back in. So these are kind of the closest promises of CRISPR. Got it. And, and it's also made a huge difference to just basic scientific research because it allows scientists to manipulate laboratory um, animals and other organisms with such ease and finesse. It means a whole category of studies are now available to them or, or easily available to them that they could just couldn't do before that would have taken years or a lot of money. So CRISPR has been used to do everything from like... Uh, uh, all like manipulate the um, fins of fish to understand how they evolved into limbs. It's been used to um, 
uh, change the wings of butterflies to understand how like the intricate molecular events that cause um, certain patterns to form. So it gives a, a, an amazing ability to understand the world around us. But of course, when used in human cases, it opens up this ethical minefield too. This action by the scientist He Jiankui seemed to have brought a whole host of condemnations from researchers. Ed, can you tell us why the scientific community was so upset? There are so many reasons. Um, so <laughs> the piece I wrote had like 15 different aspects to this that, that I think are, are troubling, but we can break them down into a couple of different categories. So I think the first one is just the, the choice of which gene to edit um, and then the way the editing was carried out. So as I said, CCR5 is this gene that affects our susceptibility to HIV. Um, and the idea is that by editing it out, you make these two girls theoretically resistant to the virus. But there are loads of other ways of preventing HIV, everything from safe sex education to uh, drugs. Um, the father was HIV positive, but you can wash sperm to prevent the infection passing on. So there wasn't really an unmet medical need. And certainly neither of these two girls were ever sick. They just had the normal gene that everyone has. So to argue that like you you need to use this fairly extraordinary um, and extreme procedure to reduce the risk of HIV, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and, and then if you actually look at the results of the editing, which her presented in slides at a meeting in Hong Kong, it doesn't really look as if it was done that well. So there is one particular mutation called Delta 32 that in CCR5 deactivates the gene and is well studied and well known to increase resistance to HIV. But that's not the mutation that you see in either of the two girls. What you see are three very different mutations whose effects are basically unknown. Like if you were doing this carefully, if you edited the embryos and saw those mutations there, what you would do is then use CRISPR to add the same mutations into, say, laboratory animals to see what would happen. Or you would do it in like immune cells taken from a human person to see how they would react. But that doesn't seem to be what happened. It seems like her just put the embryos into the mother, which means that these two girls are basically living experiments. They are testing out modifications to their genes that we haven't even tested out in animals yet. So that that alone is, I think, pretty shocking. And then if you look at the way this work was conducted, it was done in extreme secrecy. Um, her didn't tell his university that he was doing this. He took leave um, in February and conducted this work in secret. Um, the uh, ethics board of the hospital, he uh, which which apparently was where this work was done, have denied that they were ever consulted. Her's university has denounced the work and is launching an investigation. Um, a few scientists were asked about it, um, some of whom seem to have known about her intentions. Others may have caught some hints. Um, but in general, this was done in a fairly extraordinary amount of secrecy. And it doesn't seem that the team really knew what it was doing in terms of the ethical side of things. Editing CCR5 is not a risk-free proposition. So originally, scientists thought that people who naturally lack copies of CCR5 seem completely normal, which is why 
some people had been considering modifying it in the first place. But it now transpires that people who have problems with the gene are more vulnerable to infections with West Nile virus, Japanese encephalitis, and they seem to be more likely to die of influenza if they catch it. Now, obviously, these diseases are big problems. If flu in particular is a huge problem um, in China and in the rest of the world. Now, the informed consent form doesn't mention any of this. So there are so many different aspects of this, um, the way it was done, that that have really rankled people. And I think it's worth clarifying that it's not just people who are naturally like anti-genetic modification. You know, it's not just people who think this technique should never, ever, ever be used in humans full stop who are against it. It's most members of the scientific community, as far as I can tell, and people who have been actually pro-modification in the past, like a, a man named Julian Suvalescu is famously um, pro-modification and pro-human enhancement. He called this monstrous. Um, so I think this shows like just how much of a line um, people feel has been crossed. <laughs> Well, after the break, I want to step into why it horrified so many scientists. So, stick around. We'll be right back. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Sarah, when I first heard the word CRISPR a few years ago, I think it came saddled with a lot of different anxieties about how the technology could be applied. People uh, were spinning dark visions of human-animal chimeras and things like that. So what are actually the most real and legitimate fears about CRISPR and how it could be used? Okay, well, I think we just maybe saw one of them, <laughs> which is someone who does an experiment secretly to uh, unclear ends, right? So one of the problems with using CRISPR in humans, you know, as Ed sort of alluded to this, is that we don't, we know where we can make it cut, but we're not, we don't have great control over exactly what it does. So it may not make the mutation that we exactly want. Maybe it'll create another mutation. Maybe if you're doing it in embryos, right, like you're affecting every single cell in that person's body. Maybe Maybe it'll create another problem for them. Uh, maybe it could hit a cancer gene, and this is going to cause cancer or some reason. So there's kind of lots of unintended effects of CRISPR. I think there's a lot of fears also just about designer babies. I actually think that technologically, CRISPR is probably not going to be creating designer babies anytime soon, just because a lot of the traits we talk about when it comes to designer babies, like intelligence or, or height, those are actually really difficult to genetically engineer because they might require you know, hundreds or thousands of genes. And CRISPR is really good, but it's not good enough to add that many genes at the same time yet. Yeah. What would it look like to start to undertake the work 
of using CRISPR in a human context ethically. So I think we're starting to see some of that with trials in, in first of all, not babies, but adults, right? So starting with not germline, but actual uh, just cells in people's bodies. So I think one of the things you want is an unmet medical need. And I think that's why this his choice of CCR5 for HIV was actually really telling. Because if your goal is to just show that it's possible to gene edit humans, um, this is a great choice. It's This edit is a much easier to do than a lot of other edits. Um, and, you know, so he, and obviously it was possible. I mean, it doesn't seem to work perfectly, but it was possible. But if your goal is to actually address an unmet medical need, this really isn't it. The... News broke right before this big conference, and that means that the researcher, Hu Zhongkui, was questioned on stage um, by other scientists uh, who study CRISPR soon after the news broke. Sarah, what was that like? Yeah, it was tense. So I actually spoke to one of the organizers who questioned him, Matthew Porteous, and he he had met with her um, about nine months ago, which is an ominous amount of time in retrospect and had heard that Ho was interested in doing this. He didn't know he had done it. Um, and, and Matt says that he was, uh, you know, extremely angry about this, told him he couldn't do it. And I think that everyone was really shocked when it happened, but the prevailing sense was like, we need to, we can't let him like get away with it. We need to like question him on stage. So I actually thought, you know, there were lots of good questions about consent and what he actually did and technical questions. But I think this question that really stood out to me is a woman asked him about what the lives of these girls are going to be like. Um, there was some question about whether one of them was maybe still susceptible to HIV, but not the other. It's a little bit unclear. But basically, she wanted to know, like, are they going to be treated differently in the family because one of them might be immune and the one isn't? Um, and if I remember correctly, his response was, I don't know how to answer that question. And the sort of utter blankness seemed to suggest he really had not thought this through. He had thought about what was going to happen maybe a year from now or five years from now. But these girls are going to be alive for you know 18 years, 50 years. Who knows, right? This is going to affect their entire – they're going to be around when he's not around probably. Um, and it seems like he just really had not thought about those really long-term consequences. And are there any formal prohibitions or restrictions that the scientific community – or governments um, can enforce that this researcher broke? It's a little unclear. So this work would have been clearly illegal in Europe, in many parts of Europe where there are uh, clear bans on germline gene editing. In the US, it's a little trickier. There are prohibitions, but not a clear ban. So um, the um, FDA cannot consider research applications that involve germline editing. And the NIH and several other agencies can't fund uh, work that involves the destruction of human embryos. Um, so through those restrictions, this work could not have happened in the U.S. with federal funding. If her had done his work in the U.S., would that have been illegal? It's interesting that different bioethicists I've talked to have had different takes on this. But um, <laughs> Hank Greeley at Stanford made the good point that um, at the point when you put the embryos back into the mother, that counts as essentially... Um, I think it's an untested drug. Like the embryo, the embryo kind of counts as a drug in that case. Um, and you're doing that without FDA approval, which is a federal crime. Um, but it, it's it's a little bit woolly, I think. You know, And um, there's no like international body watching for all of this with regulatory powers to control it. So say you want to 
blow the whistle on something, I mean, you could contact journalists. Please contact journalists. Hello. Yes, do that. <laughs> um, but but who else do you call? You know, there's there's no phone that someone like Portis can pick up and go. I've heard something truly troubling, and that I think is is part of the problem. Um, David Baltimore, who uh, chaired the summit at which her spoke, um, said that this represented a, a failure of self regulation in the scientific community, and I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, so this international group had had convened the summit to discuss the possible ethical consequences of germline gene editing um, back in 2015, and they had issued a report through the National Academies that summarized their take on it. And their take was not an outright ban or moratorium, but that this should only be done under a set of quite stringent circumstances, including unmet medical need uh, and widespread global consensus or or, uh, a widespread public consultation and a lot of other criteria that her did not meet. It is interesting that the lack of a red light was taken by someone as a green light, um, which feeds into further discussions about how we should deal with this um, with this thing going forward. Ed, do you think that th- this does suggest that the, the scientific community will have a hard time regulating this type of thing itself? I... I kind of suspect so. I, I think the fact that this happened, um, this that this allegedly happened, um, and that uh, and that people didn't know about it is a problem. And I think this is a problem that it, that, that extends not just uh, to within the realms of CRISPR and gene editing, but across a lot of um, controversial uh, and important areas of modern science, like. The problem with modern science is that it is woefully untransparent. So the 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 incentives of modern academia are are not to um, make incredible discoveries for the good of humanity, but to publish a lot of papers in high impact journals. And that might not be why scientists got into science, but that is what they have to do to play the game. So people do work largely in secret. Um, and you know they may talk to a few other people, but you then find out at the point when someone presents at a conference or publishes a paper, which is often too late when it comes to work like this that has massive social consequences. Um, and, and so this capacity for people almost unilaterally to make decisions that affect society and that might ramify across the world um, is is huge. Some folks might say, hey, you know, we've had this pretty powerful genetic toolkit um, for a while now. And the fact that, that this is the first time that anything like this has happened is uh, a sign of the robustness of the scientific community's ethics. But, but Sarah, has anything like this actually happened before? Um, that's a good question. I think yes and no. So I think there's maybe like two issues that are kind of intertwined here. One is, can we edit the genes of a person? The other is, can we create like a, a responsible for human life, right? Like now that we're talking about babies. So with, have we edited the genes of a person? Yes, right? So in the 90s, we had something, uh, the beginning of something called gene therapy, which is uh, kind of a precursor to CRISPR. It's like you're adding a correct copy to a gene into the body of someone who doesn't have one. And this was really exciting in the 90s. This is like maybe the 90s version of CRISPR. Um, and then there was this one trial, not by a rogue scientist, but like a leader in the field that just went horribly wrong when a young 
young man died because he had a reaction to the virus that was part of the gene therapy. And that really put a chilling effect on, on the field. Um, and I think it's you know t- kind of taken 20 years for gene therapy to get back to where it, 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 you can actually start doing it again because that one action had such a few chilling effect on the field. And in terms of, you know, this control of human reproduction, right? Like, I think IVF was also extremely controversial when it first uh, was used. And that's actually become totally normalized. I, I don't think people will even bat an eye at the idea of IVF anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's worth noting that um, that gene therapy uh, case where someone died, um, her actually mentions yes. this <laughs> in... in a talk that he gave last summer uh, in July 2017 he ends that talk by saying this happened it had a chilling effect on the field if we were to do germline gene editing we must be super careful and very transparent about it and he even published a an ethics paper saying roughly the same yeah. thing which <laughs> coincidentally came out to like a couple of days after news of what he had done had actually broken out. So it's not that he was blissfully unaware of all of this. It it just seems that he had passed it all, considered it all, and then gone ahead anyway, which is one of the more baffling aspects of this Mm -hmm. whole story. How unique are the ethical uh, difficulties or issues that CRISPR itself poses? So I think a lot of these questions have come up before, like, right, we've been talking about designer babies uh, for decades now. Um, But one of the things that really is unique about CRISPR is that it's fairly easy to do compared to a lot of things that have happened in the past. So He was a researcher who, you know, he was trained at some of the most prestigious universities in the U.S., Stanford and and Rice. Um, But he was not, did not have a long time experience with gene editing or with CRISPR. He started doing this a few years ago. Um, he was able to order these parts off of the internet. This this fast and rapid spread of CRISPR and the fact that it is so much easier to do than almost anything else makes it really easy for someone like him, who's not a guy in his garage. He's someone with a university. He's affiliated with a hospital. He can work with doctors. But he, can, he doesn't need a lot of resources. He he says he funded this space uh, with his own money and some money from a startup. So you don't, it's not that hard for someone like him to just do this without telling anyone. What uh, what do you think are the likeliest impacts, Ed, of this event on the field? Um, it's, it's sort of hard to predict. I think the, the sense I get from looking at responses like at the conference and statements that have been issued afterwards, that it seems that People are very worried that this is going to have the same chilling effect that the gene therapy scandal had, that it's going to shut down legit possible uses of gene editing in the future. Um, And I think some of those statements are are verging on the tone deaf, given the the size of the public outcry. Um, And I don't know to what extent that chilling effect will actually manifest or to what extent the world will just shrug its shoulders and go, well, this was... This was a ridiculous turn of events, but you know we're just going to plow on. Um, I, I think you know I, I think we'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think it's important to to take a, a bit of a reality check um, here because, like like Sarah said, a lot of the more dystopian visions of what CRISPR could do. So the the creation of designer babies, like babies with um, that are smarter or taller or so, so on, are actually 
quite difficult to pull off because um, the genome is so complicated because those traits are the the province of a, a multitude of different genes. It's very hard to edit all of those at the same time. And um, even if you did, you have no idea whether the, the those edits would then have knock-on effects with other genes or, or, or so on. So I think using CRISPR for human enhancement in the way that I think most people fear it might be used is actually very tricky. Uh, and I think I think beyond the scope of what we can do now. What should and shouldn't people learn from this catastrophe? I'm not sure that this uh, dystopian vision of, of designer babies is actually going to to come to pass in the way that most people expect. I think if this kind of gene editing progresses, probably the most likely first thing that will happen is that people will opt to edit the genes of their embryos and babies in order to have these kind of enhanced traits. And it probably won't work. So you'll have a, like a group or maybe even a generation of babies that are thought to be, social, to be advanced in some way, but are not. And so what ha what happens then? Um, and and we see some of this in like basically almost any health related technology that there are people uh, peddling products that don't actually do the things that they say they will do. Um, and there is obviously a massive consumer appetite for those products. So I'm I'm sort of interested in that space. And I think in some ways what has happened here, um, you know, even though it is a huge like ethical maelstrom, to me fits with that narrative because neither of these two children, Nano or Lulu, may be resistant to HIV at all. So this, this sort of purported good um, may not apply to them. And yet here they are, the possibly the first two gene-edited uh, babies in the world. And what are their lives going to be like? And that is was the sort of part of the puzzle that that her apparently hadn't considered and had no answer to. And, and I think those kinds of social ramifications are unclear to me as well. And I think that's sort of what, what we, we need to grapple with now. Sarah, I'm going to ask you um, this question. Given this this burst of news that's somewhat complicated, what do you think are the most important things for the ordinary person to just take away from this whole? Yeah, I think just to understand what CRISPR is, I think now uh, maybe most people's conception of CRISPR is now somehow tied with babies, but it's actually this thing that can be used in so many different ways. It can maybe be used to make new vegetables, or it can be used to cure you know certain genetic diseases, or it can be used to study butterfly wings. It's just that it can do so many different things, and we shouldn't think of it only in the realm of designer babies. Thank you very much for that, Ed, Sarah. This has been an illuminating conversation, and I'm both... Slightly more pissed off and slightly less scared at the same time. So, okay. We always try for Thank you.
That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. Thanks, as always, to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, to our podcast fellow Patricia Jacob, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by the one and only John Batiste. Check us out at theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch our show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, do rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.